Claudia Forestieri and Brigitte Munoz-Libowitz serve as the creator and showrunner of the Latin-focused comedy series for HBO Max, Gordita Chronicles, making them the first female Latinx showrunner and creator duo. The series is executive produced by Zoe Saldana and Eva Longoria. Inspired by Claudia's own life experience, the show centers around a Latina reporter looking back on her childhood as a chubby, willful, and reluctant Dominican immigrant growing up with her eccentric family in 1980s Miami. The lighthearted series addresses themes around immigration, xenophobia, and body positivity, and stars newcomer Olivia Gonzalez and Diana Maria Riva and Juan Javier Cardenas. Claudia's previous work for Telemundo earned her five Emmys and a GLAAD Media Award. Brigitte is known for her work on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, People of Earth, and Love Life. Claudia Forestieri and Brigitte Munoz-Libowitz, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you so much for having us. So we've been really enjoying uh, the Gordita Chronicles and congratulations on this fun and lively series. I, I can't say how much I love the, the wholesomeness and the fact that you put across this America of the 1980s in Miami. Just tell us the origins of this story. I know Claudia, it draws a lot from your own life experience. Yeah, it basically is inspired by my father growing up as a chubby immigrant in 80s Miami. I like to say we're Kind of living through a gordita renaissance right now. Thankfully, I've had Bridget come on board to help flesh out these stories along with our wonderful, diverse writer's room, which was about 80% immigrants or children of immigrants. And just how did you capture that whole feel of Miami, the production and the sound, the music, everything? It just, it's lovely to go back to those more innocent times. Well, you know, Bridget and I like worked together on that and really figured out wonderful ways that we could weave in kind of like how people talk in Miami, what the music was. And Brigitte also identified three different palettes of music that we kind of drew upon. And, um, you know, it was really fun. It was challenging too, because we shot the show, most of the episodes, nine of the 10 in Puerto Rico. So it's hard to find period stuff out there. So our costume designer, Genevieve Terrell, and our production designer, Amy Wheeler, they really worked extra hard to make sure we had all the elements that we needed to create that 80s feel and have it shipped in time for us to shoot. Yeah. We did a lot of world building for this show, actually. Even though the world existed, we wanted to be ultra, ultra specific. And Claudia is being modest because she made a like 15-page document about 1980s Miami. Not, she shared her yearbooks with the writer's room. She compiled lists of events that were happening in the world in the 80s. So it was really a joint force of Claudia's news reporter research coming into play, her memories, her personal photos that we used in combination with something that I, I, I'm very interested in, which is uh, all the John Hughes movies that we used as references. And we sort of came up with this idea that, you know, we were going to make a Juan Hughes film, which is like in the world of John Hughes, the look of John Hughes, the way it was shot, the color palette, but with Latinos. And so we put a little bit of a Latinx spin on that, especially with the music. So as Claudia was talking about the three different music palettes that we wanted to draw from, for the first being the 80s, what were the songs that were contemporary at the time? Because music really creates a whole whole vibe as the kids say and we combined that with latinx music um, of the time and the fusion of the two so and we worked with a wonderful composer named yo horsley who's a latin music specialist who worked with us to create the score that combined all those those elements and i don't want to neglect the casting tell us how that came about livia gonsalves is just she's magic on screen isn't she yeah, she really is. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, we agree, um, as Victor famously says in the pilot. <laughs> um, yeah, it was so it was difficult to find our cuckoo. And, you know, there's not that many Latina kids that are pursuing acting because it's kind of like what comes first, the chicken or the egg, because there's there's never been a role like this. And there aren't that many roles for, you know, Latinx or Latina, however you want to say it, kids. So we really had to reach far and wide. And finally, I posted on Facebook and a fellow writer of Caribbean descent from New York connected me with this gentleman who knew kid actors in, on the East Coast. There's a lot of Dominicans on the East Coast. 
So then Olivia sent us this wonderful video doing a dance, very assertive, very sassy. And once I shared it with Bridge, she was like, oh, my God, could this be here? And then with every step, every callback, she just started getting like better and better. And we saw more of her natural talent, you know, come to the surface. And then Eva Longoria also weighed in a lot. And um, the Sultania sisters were also EPs on this. And then, you know, we all started like just to see her potential because this was her first acting job ever. There were hundreds of submissions for this part. And it's one of those things where I know it sounds vague and almost a little superstitious or slash magical, but you know it when you see it. I don't know how else to describe it, but it was clear. It was very evident to us that she had that spark that we imagined Cuckoo to have that we remember from our childhood was the thing that kept us being optimistic and going forward. She just had it. And even though she was green and she hadn't had experience before, we knew that in the capable hands of Eva Longoria, she was in it. She was going to be just wonderful. I think it's also nice that she didn't have that experience because as I think about the 80s as well, these aren't the presentations of young people that you might see on a show that is set in, in our present times. It is a little bit greener as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, we, we definitely were going for something more realistic and less polished. We wanted the kids to feel like kids and not like child actors, if that makes sense. So for us, the inexperience was actually a, a plus. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. And you mentioned Eva Longoria, she directs the pilot and you just tell us about some of the other creatives behind the project. So we also have Osprey which is a production company that they've been involved in developing this from the beginning. Under Osprey, Josh Berman, Chris King, Jennifer Robinson, uh, the Saldana sisters, Zoe Saldana, Cicely Saldana, Maria Saldana, and uh, of course, Reggie. It's also been our main set of producers, executive producers. Yeah, we also had some really phenomenal people working with us in production. Uh, and casting as well. Carla Hool cast our pilot. And for the series, Byron Bean did our casting and did a lot of local casting in collaboration with our other casting director, Patricia Alonso. And we had just such wonderful talent to choose from. There were people who had never been seen before, and there were people who had been really experienced actors. We, In terms of our cast, we just have some phenomenal phenomenal folks collaborating with us. And what's nice is the way also the storylines between the children, I don't want to say children because they seem so you know, smart and aware. And the, it's, it's a story for the whole family, the adult storylines, it just it kind of weaves seamlessly. Oh yeah. Thank you so much. That's really, really great to hear. It's what we were hoping to do. We wanted it to mimic the experience of immigration. I mean, most of us who have immigrated, you know, hope if we're lucky, get to come with our families and we're, we're all going through it together. So yes, there are kids that have their own inner lives and their own experiences at school, the parents with their, you know, trying to make a living, their careers as well. But ultimately at the end of the day, you come home and you're together and you're going through it as a unit. And also Rajit identified or pinpointed and expressed it in a way that all of us who were writing the scripts can understand a wonderful parallel between immigration and adolescence. And when you immigrate, it's kind of like you're going through adolescence because you're in a new place. You feel weird in your own skin. You're learning new things. Everything's changing. You feel awkward. So that also helped us to kind of like connect the adult stories to the children's stories. Mm -hmm. And throughout, through the scripts and of course the portrayal on screen, there are all these, it's subtly done, but there are all these object lessons and it's always a, there's a positive tone throughout the kind of adversity that, you know, or maybe not being seen, you know, being lumped together, you know, your name not being recognized or all these little object lessons. It's just very nicely woven into the story. I think from what I hear from all the creatives involved, you all lived a conversion of the American dream. And you say that you can move past these things with grace and positivity. Absolutely. I think challenges are part of every life, right? And they're the things that help us grow. Adversity is the thing that helps us grow. And yes, adversity can be struggle, but it can also be educational. It can also be victorious. It can also be, you know, it can lead you 
it can lead you towards bigger and better things if you accept the challenge. And I think that's such a huge part of both immigration and adolescence. And, um, you know, our family meets adversity with a smile, which is how I think both Claudia and I live our lives. And we try to pass that message on because that's, that's something that's inevitable. In any life, there's adversity. And when you've got optimism on your side, when you have a positive outlook, when you keep trying and don't let people get to you, that's what ends up letting you push past and getting you towards your goals and your dreams. Yeah. And I also felt that, or, you know, we both felt that optimism, the happiness um, is something that had been missing from the TV landscape when you look at the immigration experience. And, you know, I... So many of the immigrants I grew up around in Miami, which is a city that's so full of Latin immigrants, is you have to be very optimistic <laughs> and resilient to leave everything you know, all the people you know, your language, your customs, all that comfort, and come to a new land. Like if you are not optimistic and are able to roll with the punches and have that lighter POV, you, you're not going to survive. So that was something that I saw in my experience growing up that we kind of baked into the series as well. And may I ask, I really love this question. What is America to you? Oh, yes. From the finale, you mean. (laughs) To me, America is about coexisting. It's about a million different journeys happening all at once but really it being the same journey, which is to self-actualization, to be seen, to be loved. I know that's like not very capitalistic or whatever, but that's (laughs) what I really see. That's really what I see, especially in the immigrant community. It's self-actualization and not just for yourself, but to create that opportunity for your progeny, for your legacy. To me, when I think of America and what America is, it's the nation built by immigrants that continues to succeed in large part because of the influx of immigrants to this day. And it's, you know, sometimes I describe it as the United States as like a club, right? It's this wonderful club. So many people want to be a part of it and you need new members and immigrants are like the new members that are kind of like the born again Americans that come here and like, they're the ones that believe in America the most because everything's new to them and they've sacrificed so much to be here. So for me, I just, I, you know, something that I wish people could, could garner from this series is um, the fact that immigrants built this nation and we continue co-creating this nation with those who are immigrants as well. Yes. And I really liked also the fact that you remind us that, and I don't think it should be something that we're reminded of, that people who have rebuilt their lives, sometimes you see them in positions where they really in their home countries had positions of esteem and they may have to like requalify all over again or, you know, drive a taxi, although they've been doctors or even famous actors. This happens a lot. And that's important to always remember the story behind the person you're seeing. Yes. And to me, that just shows how much somebody wants it, like the level of sacrifice somebody is willing to make. The level of humility also, I think, is so beautiful when you see somebody willing to take a step back. Their own, I guess, their own ego takes a back seat to the the goal of a better life for themselves and their family. And to me, that is the most admirable thing maybe ever. The American dream, the whole idea of like sacrificing for the American dream. What Godita Chronicles does is acknowledges it, highlights it, but also in a sense, it criticizes. Um, what was the process behind that artistic choice? The theme around it, the central theme is this American dream that this Dominican family is coming in for. Yeah, we also, you know, wanted to kind of poke fun a little bit at the U.S. and the American dream. And, you know, it's not what it's cracked up to be. And you're told all these things. Anything's possible here. And, like, also, like, this family comes with, they have America on a pedestal. It's like, oh, which, you know, that that was one area where we did want to, like, poke a little bit of fun and, and kind of just the realities. It's not, you know, the streets are not bathed in gold. It's like, yes, there's that aspiration for everyone to be treated equal, but that doesn't always happen. And I think there's been very few shows that have kind of like looked the United States from that point of view. So yes, you know, it's a wonderful country. I'm very happy to be here and immigrants are very happy to be here. However, I also think it's important to acknowledge the cultural significance 
and the contributions of other nations. And I think, again, that's why I really think that immigrants need to have more recognition in this country as a whole, because so many immigrants from so many countries bring the best of their country and the best of their customs here and strengthen the United States. And, you know, there's a lot about Dominican culture that uh, Americans don't even realize. Like, you know, baseball is a great example. Like so many baseball players have come and played for American teams and made those American teams better. So, yeah, it's fun sometimes to kind of like, Pokemon had some things about the United States and it's not all it's cracked up to be sometimes. And we're happy to have had that opportunity. And also you've won a number of Emmys for your journalism. What were things that you felt you could address in Gordita Chronicles that you couldn't do in your journalism? Maybe there's some things that are best for less for journalism, but how did you enjoy that transitioning? Oh yeah. Well, that was, it was a wonderful transition and I, I love news. I, covered the immigrant community for many years. A lot of those stories were sad. So I wanted to make people laugh and inspire them. You know, I left news right around the time that Donald Trump won the presidency because part of me was like, I couldn't stomach like having to cover him for so many years. You know, for those four years, I'm like, I think this is the time. Like I, I, I didn't have a job lined up when I left news to pursue TV writing full time. But I did have eight years of like experience honing my craft. And with a fictional series, just just more freedom. There's more room to laugh. You can really hone in on the tones of the stories that you want to tell. And you can go a lot deeper. With journalism, as much as I love it, usually you only get a little piece of the story. When you're covering a story, you don't know if it's, you know, if the beginning or the end or the middle. You don't have the benefit of hindsight. So, you know, with Gordita Chronicles, I was able to use my... It's been 40 years since I came to the United States and have that lens that like can help me focus on the stories that were important looking back. In relation to the fact that you went from like journalism to TV writing and also bridge you can jump in. In the sense of representation in both spaces, in US popular culture has been very stereotyped for Latina immigrants. So how was your film more or less subverting those stereotypes? Well, it started with just being inspired by the real life people that surrounded me. So when I left journalism, it was at a time where there were a lot of negative stories about immigrants and immigrants were being vilified and blamed by the, the president. And he also disrespected a lot of other foreign nations. And it was just a nightmare, as we all remember. But we started with characters that I knew growing up. So we wanted to give them, yes, that lighter side and it's a comedy, but also that real life dimension. Yeah, I think Claudia said it really well that we, fo we focused on people that were really inspirational. So for me, the antidote to stereotyping is specificity. And that's also the key to really honest and I think quality comedy. So the specificity of our characters, I think really helps break down those stereotypes. And I think from that, once you see somebody as a main character, you see the world through their eyes. And once you see the world through their eyes, you understand them as individuals and you're not lumping them into groups. I mean, yes, there are some things that, you know, the Latinx community all has in common with one another, but that doesn't mean we're just this monolith. We are so many different nations, so many different ethnicities, so many different like dialects. I mean, there's just, we're very diverse within that community. So being specific, like we have Dominicans in the show, we have Cubans in the show, we have Colombians in the show, we have like people who are first generation, new immigrants. We have, I mean, we have a taste of everything and we try to be very specific and intentional with each character and each story to try to give each person the appropriate spotlight to distinguish them from the group. Yeah, there's this beautiful specificity. And you've also worked on other shows, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and others. And how do you contrast that to those shows? Well, I actually think those shows do this some quite similar things. I think I've learned from those shows. I think 
the way you build up a really funny character is by getting to know them intimately, their neuroses, their hopes, their dreams, their fears, their pet peeves, all of that. And I think Brooklyn Nine-Nine actually did a really great job with their characters um, in that regard. You could almost always predict how character would react, not in a bad way, but you knew them. You knew what made them work. You knew what the engine inside them was. And we tried to do similar things with our characters as well. And I don't know the whole arc, but you have the voiceover, Olivia, that Cuckoo becomes a, a journalist. I don't know how it grows, but we're looking forward to her development and the family's development and we try to piece together their pathway. You want to know about seasons two through nine? <laughs> Got it. <laughs> well, we can give you, I don't know how much of a taste we can give you, except to say that we do have some really fun ideas for a potential season two that we've, Claudia and I and a couple other writers have been working on. Without any spoilers, I will say that Cuckoo goes on to make some more friends, more indifferent and new friends. Mom decides, as you see in the finale, wants to explore being a woman who works outside the home. Leah, as you see, has sort of a uh, moved to a new social status at the end of our first season and how that will play out is to come. <laughs> and, as, and as far as Victor is concerned, he's also sort of finally acclimating to and feeling secure in his choice to not take the easy way out and, and not to identify, to separate himself from his family's money in order to make his own vision of what he wants for himself come true. And I think we'll, we'll see a lot more of that in season two, if there's a season two. I think there, there will be. It seems very lined up and, and intriguing. We want to see, see all of that. And how do you draw on your own experiences and memories for the creation of the show? So at the beginning of season one, we did some exercises that we I had learned from Jen Grisanti, who Claudia and I had a wonderful opportunity to work oh, with. Oh, no. uh, okay. Yeah. We had a wonderful, so Jen Grisanti was one of the, was the story consultant in the NBC Writers on the Verge program. And she has written so many wonderful books about how to generate content from your own life. And one of the exercises that she has is looking at photos from different eras in your life. And. Claudia has a nice story also from that that she could tell after this. But we look at um, we asked all of our writers to bring in photos of themselves at the beginning of the season, three different photos that meant something to them, uh, different stages in their lives. And from those photos in conversation, we were able to pull out these really pivotal moments in childhood and adolescence and adulthood, all to do with their families. And all the stories that you see in season one come from all of our writers' lives, their families' lives, their immigration experiences, their high school experiences, all that sort of. So they're all, they're things that happened or based on things that really happened. And it's all derived from all of our writers getting really close and personal with each other the first few weeks of the writer's room. Yeah, my favorite photo was one that Brigitte shared of her in a beauty pageant. So the finale was inspired by Brigitte. Brigitte was in a bunch of you know, pageants growing up and she was a little gordita too. Mm -hmm. So we had like, yeah, that was a wonderful exercise that really got us on the road to tapping into a really fun way for people, our writers to get to know each other and also to like tap into this material that we all have. Like it's, you know, for me, like part of the journey with this show and one of the reasons I'm so grateful to have somebody like Bridget as part of it is learning to identify the material in your own life that makes for a good story. Because sometimes it's hard to tell. You know, most people don't think their lives is, are like that interesting. But with that photo exercise, it just kind of like forced you to like, you're like, wait a second. Oh, I have a picture that reminds me of this and this and this and that. And it's a great trigger for personal stories. Hmm. Yeah, photos are really indicative of an important moment. And whether or not you see it as it's happening, when you look back, you can remember so much about that moment, your emotional state, where you were in your life, what we were trying to achieve, or were you taking a break from all those things. Uh, and if you can catalog them and then take a step back, you can see the ingredients for a story. I always wondered how that worked in uh, the writer's room. So it's wonderful to know that actually that those are their stories. I know it, there's shows you can't say that they're always the writer's 
personal stories. But how does that work when you you're assigning, you know, one or maybe a collaboration of uh, two writers on a, an episode, but are some would then take up the experience, it's your personal experience that one is shared, but someone else will write that episode. I just don't know how that all works because you're all talking and then you just divide it up. Yeah, I think by the end of, well, I have, t- I have two things to say about that. The first thing being that uh, as an example, Claudia and I worked on episode two together, which is based on Claudia's life. But uh, even though that didn't happen to me, I got to know very intimately that experience with Claudia and I was able to infuse it with a little bit of my own experiences and score my mom's experiences. So even though, yes, it is based on something that happened to her, that's the backbone. Or you imagine like a Christmas tree, right? That's your base. And then not just me, but Claudia and I, yes, we wrote the draft together. But once you take the draft, you bring it back to the writer's room and all the writers read it and they give you notes. They punch out jokes. And each one of those little things that they add become ornaments to the Christmas tree. And so whenever you see an episode, I'm not, there are showrunners that don't do it like this. And they are, they often just rewrite drafts themselves entirely, or they just take it and do what they want with it. The, our process in our room is that it, it, it's a huge collaboration. It's a potluck. It's the Christmas tree metaphor I just gave you where somebody takes, somebody makes the tree and then we all gather around to help decorate it and make it the prettiest and the best it can be. I love that tree metaphor. That's all okay. good. Yeah. So that, to add to that, how it starts, Mia, is like, let's say I'm going to keep going with the Christmas tree. Like everybody one day will be like, okay, today we're going to talk about episode three. And everybody brings one or two, three Christmas trees, right? (laughs) Bear trees. And they're like ideas. Well, when I was in fifth grade, this happened to me. And when I was in second grade, this happened to me. And this happened to my uncle. So then uh, me and Bridge together would figure out, okay, which one of these trees do we want to be the next one of And then it's like, okay, we're going to start with this idea. We use that as a foundation. And then you kind of like start fleshing out the branches, which, you know, which would be like your act one, your act two, your act three. Like, how does it start? How does it end? How does this, you know, thing that happened to our writer, Eddie, translate to something that could happen to Cuckoo in the 80s? So um, it's a process and it can be chaotic and organized all at once. At the beginning, it's kind of like, you know, a lot of ideas floating out there. But um, thankfully, you know, Bridge had so much experience coming from comedy rooms. And she was like kind of our ringleader. (laughs) So it's like, okay, throwing out ideas. And then like, okay, now let's see. Now we're going to hone in on this one and all that. So it was kind of organized chaos. You have all these ideas coming in, then you start honing it. But just because the draft is in, doesn't mean that's the end of it. Sometimes, you know, you backtrack. Like there were a couple of episodes that once we saw the draft, you know, we're like, oh, I don't know if this is quite working. And then we would go back and hack off a few of the tree branches and then build up new ones. And it's like, okay, these work better. Let's get these decorations on here. Yeah. Yeah. And actually the process continues well through post, I would say. And it doesn't, the collaboration doesn't stop there. You know, an addition of something from a music supervisor can change the feeling of a whole scene. You know, an idea of lifting a scene or leaving a scene at a certain point from an editor can really make a big difference. Um, All those things uh, continue on through post. And do you mind, I mean, because you're a showrunner, so, you know, you're getting that final. But when you were, say, a writer, would you mind, you put your scene together, you put your episode together, and do you mind the rewrites? Is it troublesome? No. I mean, I, not for me personally. I, I always understood my job as a writer as, as, was to be a mercenary, was to do what the showrunner wanted. The showrunner, and this is my perspective, some people will disagree, but I believe the showrunner and, and the creator are the singular creative voices of the show. And they have a vision. That's the reason they pitched it and they sold it. They know what they want. The network bought their idea. It is your job as a writer to execute their vision. And if what you wrote down isn't totally right, it's not personal. It's just that you don't, you're not living in their brain yet. And so when you're rewritten, it's an opportunity for you to see, oh, that's what they wanted. Okay, now for next time, I know how to, it's never personal. It's never personal. And if you take it personally, you're just making it harder for yourself because it really isn't. It's all about serving the characters and serving the vision of the show. Yeah, writing is rewriting and a script can always be better. 
and the writing doesn't stop until the episode airs and it's out of your hands if you handed it because even at the end while we were editing it post we were still adding a couple lines of narration like we're like oh we think we need a line here like oh so it never stops so you know to anyone who wants to be a, a, any type of writer you really have to just be tight you just have a lot of stamina that's the word stamina because a script can always be better even now like we look back at the scripts or the episodes and as much as we love them they're all our babies it's like oh my god i wish we could have like sometimes we think of something funnier like oh my gosh she could have said this instead of that like it never ends it never ends so you kind of have to be like you know lucky for me uh that we had bridget because bridget is more of a perfectionist than i am you know, and she's always searching for the funnier line and funnier. And she's always like, like a coach, like pushing you and pushing you. So it, it never ends the rewriting. So it can always be better, it can always be funnier. Yeah, I agree. And to tie back into something we were talking about earlier is TV. I mean, maybe features are different. I think features, the writer and the director, it's more about like, there's no one rewriting you usually if you're doing your job right. You know, you're, you're the only person you've got that control but tv is a team sport and i think to go back to the idea of humility i think tv writing a good tv writer is humble and is willing to take one for the team is willing to accept a rewrite or do the rewrite themselves that it's all about what part you play in the cohesive unit of the team and what about those improvisational moments? Because uh, particularly some of the actors, I imagine, even though she's a newcomer, I imagine that Olivia offered some improvisational moments, even physically, or Diana Maria Riva. On set, we had a rule, which is that we wanted to get things twice, at least twice as written, as so that we knew we had it in the can, the network and the studio would be happy to see that what they bought on being filmed. <laughs> and then after that, we could play with it a little bit. And sometimes it was the writers collaborating with the actors. And then sometimes it was a director collaborating with the actors. And sometimes it was the actors collaborating with each other. They had a good idea. They'd come up and they say, I have an idea. What if I do this? And we'd be, oh my God, that's so funny. Absolutely do that. So it was not really usually like within the scene, although sometimes we did what was called a fun run where we were just like, we have multiple choices of options that we love. Just go in there and see what happens. We did, there were occasions we had extra time, which was rare, <laughs> that we could do things <laughs> like that. Um, and those are always really fun. And everybody, everybody, every single cast member had good ideas to contribute. I have to say, we were very, very lucky. We have such um, astute, critically thinking actors who have the skill to pull that off too. So yes, there are moments in there that are like that. I'm going back a little bit to pitching. Um, Shani, Bridget, you sure know that as a right eye in this balance of two. As two women of color in predominantly white male industry, what are the struggles when it comes to pitching an idea like Gold Detail Chronicles? Like what were the struggles you faced? What were the things you had to change if you had to? What were like the struggles around that in terms of like pitching this idea to mostly people who didn't look like you and also in respect of also having a crew and cast that were mostly people like you. I guess I could speak to the early stages. So we had, I was kind of lucky. Sometimes I say I kind of forced, gumped my way into <laughs> getting the show made because <laughs> it was, I had a, it used to be a one hour dramedy. I had it as a sample because when you're, it's very competitive here when you're trying to break in as a TV writer. And you're always told to write what you know, but I got a more specific piece of advice, which is write a story that only you could tell. So I was like, okay, I'm going to write about the biggest thing that happened to me when I was a young child, which is coming to a new country. And so it was a dramedy. And then um, Frank Ochoa at Sony read it and he's like, you know what? I think this could be a show. Would you mind turning it into a half hour comedy? And I was like, I will turn this into a procedural, a musical, whatever you want. You think it could sound like, let's do it. So then he was a Latinx, um, Latin executive, Mexican-American. I think that was key because he knew that this was a show before I did. And I think if he wouldn't have been someone of Latin American descent, he wouldn't have been able to, you know, see the potential in the show. Also, after that, we teamed up with people who, you know, weren't Latin, but 
that I feel also strengthened the premise of the show because we don't want just Latin people or people of color to see the show. We want everyone. We want to get as wide an audience as possible. I'm a huge fan of Rami. And Rami said something. I heard him speak one time in a podcast much like this, talking about how his writer's room was divided into the people that like when he shares a story about his Muslim background, that people are like, oh my God, yeah, that happened to me. And people are like, oh my God, what? That happened to you? So I feel like you need those two entities, like the people that relate to it, it can vouch for, yes, these things happen. Yes, you know, when you're growing up and you speak Spanish, some people might like try to punish you for speaking your native language. But, you know, also people that like, don't quite understand how that could happen because like that, you, you know, layer in the story and, and present it in a way that even someone who's never experienced it can still follow along and enjoy and relate to the story. Bridgette and Claudia are some of the most relatable creatives I have met. As an immigrant filmmaker whose work predominantly focuses on immigrants, a lot of the conversations in this episode hits close to home. From people finding it hard to pronounce your name or the names of your participants to people not understanding the perspective through which you are coming from with your work. All these sound all too familiar to me. But listening to how Cordita Chronicles, a personal passion project, got made and the intense love behind it gives me a lot of hope for my projects. When Claudia Forestieri talks about the write what you know advice she got from a mentor, it gives me hope. Bridget highlighting that the community we represent aren't monoliths. It gives me hope that there are so many diverse and different stories that need to be told in the immigrant communities, and there are basis for the stories. To answer your question about, you know, what's it been like to pitch ideas that people don't get? My, my very first experience with that, I went to uh, undergrad for writing for screen and television at USC. I think I was one of very few women and very few people of color. I think there were maybe like, our, the program was maybe 10%. And um, I remember at the end of our, our junior year, we had, and I think it still exists, I think it's called First Pitch, where you take all the material that you've worked on during college and your new ideas and you meet a bunch of representatives and production company folks and you pitch your projects to them. And I think I must have pitched 20 different people. And one person kind of barely had an interest in something, any of my stories. And I was so confused. And one of them actually said to, said to me, these are, these are kind of cute, but why don't you, you don't want to make any, why don't you want to make any money? <laughs> because they were stories about people like they very narrow specific against specificity specific stories about women of color myself I would write about things that had you know what happened to me in my life and there just was no interest at the time that was 2006 right over time how many years has it been 15 years it's only in the last three-ish three to five years that I have seen personally any interest in the stories that I want to tell as someone who pitches as a tv writer it's different you fulfill the voice of the show and that's different but original ideas I've really seen a big shift in the last three to five years what do I attribute that to I think just cultural consciousness um, of the lack of diversity we've done a very good job bringing it to the foreground we have so much more to do we have so far to go still but I do have, I have noticed a shift. People are being held accountable and people are realizing that immigrants and people of color have money too that we can spend, you know? And we're customers also, we crave content. And I think, you know, Claudia made an excellent point when talking about Frank's role in bringing Gordita Chronicles to the screen, which is that he's a Latinx executive. He knows the demo. He's open to stories like this. Not to say our other executives, I mean, at Sony are incredible and they have such a, a wide taste that any project that I felt so supportive bringing my projects to them, they are very, very supportive in terms of diverse stories. Um, I have to just give them a shout out, but Frank, especially 
You know, that's an example of, I think we really need people of color. Yes, in front of the camera. Yes, behind the camera, but also in the offices. I think we need more execs of color. I think we need more representatives of color. We need agents and managers who can read and recognize good material, who are willing to read a script from a name they can't pronounce. Like that's huge. I think that's hugely important. I can't, I'm sure people were intimidated by my name. <laughs> They're like, who's this? I don't understand it. <laughs> Goodbye. And I, I think, you know, I've actually had someone like say to me, it professionally one time pulled me aside and I won't say who, but somebody pulled me aside one time and they were like, why do you, why do you think there's just so few funny Latinos or so few Latinos in comedy. And I was like, I think you, you just, you just said it because you're not looking for us. We're there. You, you just don't see us, I think is a huge part of it. So visibility is also pretty huge. So I have to say, I love seeing these comedy showcases of people getting out there they're focusing on people of color and comedy. I think anything we can do to really just increase visibility is going to be massive. And it, of course, inspires a whole new generation who can see, well, if you can see it, as they say, you can be it. This is possible because so many people just self-censor themselves because they think, oh, there's not a chance. It does really seem insurmountable sometimes, or it could seem insurmountable. It seems inaccessible. There's, you're, It's like you're trying to open a door in a wall of white stone. You know what I mean? And it's, I, I understand that. But if you just keep chiseling, just keep chiseling and get through. <laughs> It's such a beautiful message and we love the sense of joy and it takes me back to my childhood, even though it's not specifically about me. So we like the specificity that is universal. And I was wondering how, as you get feedback now from different areas of the Latinx community, what's the response like? Well, we've been getting like a lot of wonderful responses over the weekend. It's kind of, I've been like half in tears, mm -hmm. like all weekend from people just talking about, you know, Dominicans and Latin people, people who grew up in Miami, Cubans, just like saying how much they connect to this, how much they didn't realize that they needed to see this. But there was one message in particular that I got from a woman in Australia who's Aboriginal and her daughter, she sent me a photo of her daughter and her daughter looks almost like a doppelganger of Olivia who plays Cuckoo. And she said that like the last, um, I haven't even shared this with you, Bridge. No, I saw it. I the one in Hark. Anyway, that message just touched me so much because this woman said that after her daughter saw the last episode, which the last episode, again, was inspired by Bridget's true story of being in pageants. So this Aboriginal woman from Australia reached out to tell me how her daughter was filled with so much, you know, self-esteem. And she got like this dose of courage from seeing that last episode. And I was like, oh my God, like I, it was just, I couldn't believe it. That was, so to me, yes, of course it's wonderful. And we're getting all this positive reinforcement from the Latin A community. But on top of that, to get people outside of the Latin A community who are also identifying with it, that to me so far has been the most gratifying. Mm. Uh, yes, I agree. <laughs> so as you think about teachers and life lessons that have been important to you, who are some of those people who you know, perhaps recognize your talents first or just gave you that courage, like the young girl in Australia, to pursue your dreams? Yeah, I have to say educators have been everything to me in terms of getting me to where I wanted to be and getting me to realize what I wanted to be. Um, first of all, my mom's an educator and she was always extremely encouraging of my writing and creative pursuits. My grandmother also very, very, my whole family, very encouraging about pursuing writing. And I think it was very, I was very fortunate. I had a really wonderful teacher in college at USC, Fred Rubin, another sitcom writer, who really just showed me what the craft was, really just held back no secrets, taught me technique, which, you know, I think teaching writing can be hard if you just are somebody who's naturally just gifted and can do it. He really broke it down into technique for me and pedagogy in terms of like, here is how you come up with an idea for an episode. Here's how you structure the beats to an episode. Here's how you write this kind of a joke. It looked very, very nuts and bolts. And he really gave me uh, the tools I needed to like start me on my way of becoming a capable writer. Another really wonderful teacher was Jen Grisanti, as I mentioned. She just 
really taught us, took us to the next level. We had already, when we met her, we'd already had skills. We, in order to get in, you have to submit two scripts. So you've already written at that point. She really brought us to the next level in terms of accessing our personal stories, putting them on screen, finessing things to the point where they're not just an idea on a page, but actually full visions, a blueprint ready to go. I've had some wonderful mentors, Robin Sweet. Before I was a showrunner, a writer, I was a line producer, production manager, worked in production uh, in New York. She was the person that mentored me. I was her assistant. I learned from her and all about production. And so she gave me a skill that has helped me uh, as a writer to become ultimately a showrunner. So I've just learned from some incredible, incredible people. Very grateful. Yeah, I also have a lot of people that influence me, educators. From early on, sixth grade, I had a wonderful Cuban-American teacher, Miss Pruna. She's married since, and um, we're friends on Facebook, and she, like, reaches out to me all the time. But she just showed me, like, what a Latina woman could do and, and how you could be, like, proud of your culture and still excel in the American school system. Miss Ranieri, who I'm also still friends with on Facebook, and in high school, she taught me all about journalism skills and how to tell uh, a story that's informative and also entertaining. I had a lot of wonderful teachers at the University of Florida where I studied journalism. Telemundo was a wonderful school for me. I worked at various Telemundo stations and there I learned how to tell a succinct story and also a story that connected with the audience. And I learned the importance of figuring out what your audience wants and, and never forgetting that you're always writing for an audience. It's not about what you know you want. A story is only as good as the impact that it has on your audience. And then when I got to Los Angeles, there were a slew of people that helped me. I don't think I would be here if it wasn't for the advice and guidance and knowledge that was imparted to me by key members of the Black Hollywood community. Kelly Edwards from HBO Access. She's now a writer in her own right. Tim McNeil from ABC Disney also helped guide me. Karen Horn. Karen Horn was the woman who ran NBC Writers on the Verge, the program where I, in 2013, me and Brigitte were both selected. And we were like the only Latinas in, in that program that year. And um, my biggest instructor, the last probably 12 months of my life, has been this woman right here. Oh, um, no, because it's true, because she really taught me I struggle with, with my comedy and like, I, I real I've realized something in the last few months. I know Bridge is always telling me, you're funny. You're funny. Yes, you are. Thank you. Not as funny as you, but I'm trying. I'm just trying to keep up with her. But, um, you know, <laughs> I think that as, as women of color, at least for me, I'm, what I've realized is like being Latina, like part of me, when you're in comedy, you have to risk looking stupid sometimes because not everything you're going to say is going to be a funny joke. And, Bridge is fearless. And I realized that I never wanted, I feared looking anything less than always intelligent and on top of things because just being a woman of color, I just felt like it took me so long to get to this level. But watching Bridge and I just like, I'm learning so much about comedy because, you know, that's one of her many, many strengths is all the years that she's had in comedy moves that she's brought to this show. So she's been my number one teacher lately. So nice. It's yeah, terrible. I do a lot of stupid stuff in the room. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the joys of it, actually. Well, I yeah. can have it because I feel safe. We have a really wonderful room of really generous and loving people. I have to say our room feels like family. And mm -hmm. I know that's some kind of toxic work speak, but it's not. It's just we actually <laughs> like each other. <laughs> you, I can see it. Yeah, it really comes across on screen and just listening to you. Are both of you also, as you think about the future and the importance of the arts and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Oh, lately, I've just been feeling like they're the ones that are going to save us. I am so inspired. I mean, I, during the pandemic, I got on TikTok. And I learned so much from the generation beneath me who were so vulnerable about their vulnerable, about their mental health, about their politics, their uh, gender identities. I've learned so much about these people who are being so brave at such a young age to just be unapologetically who they are. I to just say I applaud 
all of you keep doing what you're doing. You're going to help us be better people. You're going to save the world. When those when those BTS fans bought all those tickets to Trump's thing, and you know, I just was like, we're going to be okay. They've got, we are, we may have screwed things up. Help us fix it. Yeah. And I would tell young people, if you have a dream and somebody tells you you can't do it, use that no as fuel for your dream. Because I, I sometimes I like to say that I made a career out of people telling me no. Like I wanted to go away to college. And my mom was like, no, you don't. A Dominican girl doesn't leave home until she's married. And then I wanted to be a TV reporter. And people, I had some people that told me that I wouldn't be able to do it because I was gordita. And then I got on TV anyway, and I became a TV reporter anyway. Same thing when I went to be a writer here in TV in Hollywood. People told me that I was crazy at 35, leaving my family to come to LA to pursue TV writing. So if you have a dream, don't let anybody tell you you can't do it. If people tell you no, use that as fuel. Use that as a test of like, do I really want this? Because whatever your dream, maybe you get it, maybe you don't. But just having the opportunity to pursue your dream is is a big privilege so whatever you want in life just don't be scared to go for it well thank you You, both of you have given a lot of uh, joy and positivity and happiness and just by you pursuing your dream it makes us feel it's possible for all of us so thank you claudia forestieri and brigitte munoz libowitz for sharing your sense of joy, telling stories about resilience, family, growing up, friendships, unity that speak not only to the Latin community, but to all. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you for Thank having you. So fun. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Naomi Zidon with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Naomi Zidon. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicolas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.